Shabbat Shalom. I can feel the power. Yes. Arr. All right. So I'm in um, a, a series on the kingdom of God. So this is our fifth in the series on the kingdom of God. I hope you're enjoying it. It's a great theme. It's the central theme from Torah all the way to maps, which comes after the book of Revelation. It is the big overarching theme, the kingdom of God. So today I want to talk about the kingdom's Torah. This is probably the most misunderstood part of the kingdom. People wonder, what about the Torah? What does that mean? Is there no Torah now that there's a kingdom? Does it give way to it? There's a lot involved here, and we're going to try to sort through it in this uh, short teaching, but I hope you will catch the idea. So a kingdom includes a king, his law, or Torah. That's what we, we, we take the word Torah in Hebrew, we translate it with the English word law. It's far more than a law. It's God's instructions concerning righteousness in every sphere of human experience. So every kingdom has a king, and every king has a law. In his rule and his reign over his people, over his geography, he reigns and rules via his law. He also has a mission for his kingdom. In this teaching, I'm going to focus on the Torah of the king and his kingdom. This Torah of King Jesus is for all of those who have entered the kingdom of heaven by faith in him. If you're born again, you're in the kingdom. If you've given your life to Jesus, you're under the rule and reign of God. You're within his dominion. And he has given to you his law. It's how he governs his kingdom. It's what identifies us. In fact, it defines us. It is the way of life that King Jesus has given to his followers. So let's jump in and begin to live it out. It's who we are. Now I want to recap. I want to recap because these ideas uh, are not mainline. Uh, most churches don't teach these particular concepts. So let me just recap so we're all on the same page. We've been talking about the church. Jesus said, I've come to build my church. It's the Greek word, ekklesia. I've come to build my ekklesia. Now, the point that I want to make that is often overlooked, that is so super important for all of us, is that Israel is the ecclesia. Israel is the church. We're often told that the church and Israel are two separate entities. They're distinct. But yet the scriptures say that Israel is the church. She's the ecclesia. She started in the wilderness under Moses. We read that in Acts chapter 7. That the church began at the first Pentecost, at Sinai. Not in Acts 2, already began under Moses in the wilderness. That was the church of the Lord being led by Moses. In the Greek Septuagint, a translation of the Hebrew Tanakh by Jews and for Jews into Greek. It takes the word kahal, which is often referring to the people of God, refers to Israel as a, an assembly of God. And it takes that word in almost 100 places and translates it with the Greek word ekklesia, the church of the Lord. Israel is the church. She's the church. She's the bride. She's the wife of God, if you will. And this concept of her beginning with Moses in the wilderness is fascinating when you think about it. The Gentiles who come later are grafted into the church. They're not the church. The church is already in existence. Believers in Jesus are grafted into the Israel of God, the ecclesia of God. 
Now, this is another important point that I want to make. Isaiah says, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is only the remnant that will be saved. Not all of Israel is going to be saved. Just a remnant. In Zechariah, he gives a prophecy concerning uh, salvation in in a slightly different context, but it relates to what we're talking about. He says only one-third of the population in the land is going to be saved. It's a last days kind of prophecy. You can find that in Zechariah chapters, I think, 12, 13, and 14. Yeah, so what's saved in the end? Not all of Israel. One-third, a remnant, a strong minority. And this remnant of Israel is the ecclesia of God, the church of God throughout the Tanakh period. She's that believing group of faithful Jews in every generation. The bulk of the nation is usually involved in idolatry and rebellion. That group is broken off. Even though she's still called Israel, she's in rebellion and does not have any covenant standing. In the end, she's lost, not saved. It's those who believe in the coming Messiah who represent the ecclesia of God. And then when Messiah shows up in that generation, it's that group of believing Jews who embrace Jesus as the Messiah that constitute the remnant of that generation. That's the ecclesia of God. That's the remnant of God. That's the little flock of God. Jesus said, he came to redeem and build her up. He came to build up the remnant of Israel. He came to build up the little flock, the faithful flock within the larger flock. He says, I've come to build my church. That's important for us to understand. What that implies is that the church of God, the church of the Lord under Moses is given to the son and the church becomes his. Jesus is the recipient of everything that belongs to the Father. He becomes the Lord of the church. In fact, the Greek word that we end up with when we communicate uh, through our English word church means belonging to. So, So this word church means belonging to. So this people of God belongs to the Lord. We belong to Yeshua the Messiah who has come to raise up and build up the ecclesia of God. Not only does he come to save her and build her up, but he actually gives her the power, the authority, and the glory of the kingdom. We read about that a couple weeks ago. He said to the believing Jews in his days, He said what? Fear not, little flock, for the Father is pleased to give you the kingdom. The kingdom is given to the followers of Jesus. Peter's the first one to receive the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Later, the other disciples receive that same authority. Every local church that has elders established also shares in that authority to govern and rule over the people of God. Because the church receives the kingdom. Because the church is under the rule and reign of Messiah. She also shares in the glory of the kingdom. The power of the kingdom. The authority of the kingdom. You know, I've done some exorcism in my ministry. Not a lot. But I've done some, some pretty, pretty uh, uh, in-depth exorcism. And I am always astonished at demonic entities that have been around for thousands and thousands of years, majesties, divine beings that have fallen from grace, and how they obey me. I mean, who am I? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm like, I've been around for what? 60 years? That's nothing compared to them. My wisdom, my knowledge, nothing compared to them. My power, nothing. But because I'm in Christ and I share in his authority and power, they obey me. They come out, they do what I tell them to do, and and, and people are set free. Yeah, we share in the rule and reign of Messiah. 
We are the gatekeepers of the kingdom of heaven. We are the ones that can set the captives free and bring people into this glorious rule and reign of Messiah. The Gentiles, they come in later, right? The Gentiles come in later. The kingdom's first given to the Jewish followers of Jesus. And then the Gentiles come in later, and they too participate with Messianic Jews, believing Jews. And they join her. They become part of the olive tree of Israel, grafted into the olive tree of Israel. They become full citizens in the Israel of God, Ephesians chapter 2. They share equally in the power and the glory and the authority of the kingdom of God as believers in Jesus. Now, the big question is this. Seeing that the covenant of Moses is done away with, what happens to the Torah? Where's the Torah now? How does the Torah relate to the kingdom? Are kingdom people subjected to the Torah? Are we to live under the Torah? Under the new covenant and in the realm of the kingdom of God is the Torah for the Jewish believer only. These are big questions. I hope I can answer a few of these today. I want to jump into Hebrews chapter 8. I want to talk about the covenant. The covenant that was made with Moses is what we commonly and sometimes, you know, it's not the best choice of words, but we label it the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, right? Or the Old Covenant. The question is, is is there an Old Covenant still in force? Is the covenant that God made with Moses and Israel still in force? Because if it's not, then what happens to the Torah? And I think we're so afraid that we're going to lose the Torah that we try to make a case that the Old Covenant has not been done away with. But I want to be really super clear here. The Old Covenant, the one made with Moses, it's over. It's done away with. It's been removed. The, writer, the writers of the prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah and others, they recast the covenant of God that he made with Israel through Moses in the metaphor of marriage. So some of these writers will actually refer to the covenant and describe it in terms of marriage. And so the covenant becomes like this way of communicating that not only did God joining him, join himself to Israel, but she actually became his wife and that he is a husband to her and that they're in this covenant marriage. And God describes her rebellion and transgressions as adultery. Isn't that interesting? God himself uses the language, metaphor of marriage, and he accuses her of serial adultery. And she commits this idolatry and adultery over and over and over for generations. And so he threatens to separate himself from her. First, he threatens a separation, a legal separation, not a divorce, but certainly one step away from it. So he threatens this separation from Israel through Isaiah, hoping that she'll repent, come back to him in faithfulness. And she doesn't. So finally he says, okay, I'm divorcing her. And through Jeremiah and Isaiah, God gives her a writ of divorce. Some scholars point out that the prophets always act out prophetically these words. They do something in a way that acts out the prophetic word that they're giving with their lips. And that there's a good chance that Isaiah or, or Jeremiah or maybe both actually writ out the document of divorce on behalf of God and presented that to the leadership of Israel in their day. But Isaiah, you know, God prophesies through Isaiah and says, hey, where's the written of divorce that I gave to your mother? You know, she's no longer my wife. I have divorced her. Jeremiah makes it clear. He has divorced his people, Israel. What does that mean? She's no longer his wife. They're no longer his people. That covenant 
is over. He ripped it in half. It's null and void. She can no longer call herself his wife. They can no longer call themselves his people. Now that is truly troubling and shaking in every way. The same prophet, Jeremiah, who prophesies the divorce is the same prophet who also gives hope to the people of Israel. The prophet goes on to prophesy that even though he divorces his people and they're no longer his people, in the last days, he will offer a new covenant and they will become once again his people. All of them? All those who believe. All of them? No, a remnant as prophesied. But there'll be a strong minority of Jewish people who come to faith under that new covenant, reconstitute the people of God, the Jewish people of God. And every provision that was lost through disobedience will be restored in that new covenant. So when's the new covenant coming? So from the time of Isaiah and Jeremiah and the later prophets, there's no covenant standing. No one in Israel has any covenant standing. You, 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 you tell Jewish people back then, you don't have a covenant with God. What, what's going to happen? What do you tell people when you tell people you have no covenant standing with God? What happens? Have you, I don't know about you. See, I, I was raised Catholic. And so my idea of salvation as rooted in Catholic teaching is tied into the church. There's only one church, the Holy Roman Catholic Church. And there's no salvation outside of her. She's the bride. And so when my friends who were Protestants uh, were sharing their faith with me, I just thought, you know, what are you talking about? You know, I'm already saved. I'm part of the church. They'd say, no, you need to be born again. I'd always ask them, how big is your church? Well, our church has 80 people. I said, well, mine has 1.2 billion. You know, who are you to tell me anything? I'm here to tell you, you need to get in the church so you can be saved. You need to listen to the Pope. They'd quote the word. I'd quote, quote tradition, right? And so uh, they, they worked on me and said, unless you're born again, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. Unless you're born again and in Christ, you have no relationship. In fact, you're condemned. If you were to die, you would find your place in hell. That shook me. Considering that idea that I was lost shook me to the core. I'd go home at night and I'd think in my head and in my spirit. I'm, in fact, I'd, I'd go to try to lay down to go to sleep and the word would come to me. You must be born again or you'll have no pardon in my kingdom. Their words that they quoted to me would go round and round in my head and keep me up. Yeah. Well, I finally came into the truth. But there was a great shaking that took place in realizing that maybe I'm not saved. And when the Jewish prophets are telling Jewish people, you're not saved based on Jewishness. You're saved based on your faith in the promised seed to come. That meant that some Jewish people wouldn't be saved. And they wanted the idea that their ethnicity was the basis of their salvation. And when they were told otherwise, they did everything they could to shut the mouths of the prophets. They even stoned the prophets. They would close their ears because they didn't want to hear anymore and they would rush forward and throw stones and kill the prophets because the prophets would bring to their attention the idea that they were cut off, alienated, divorced, and no longer had any covenant standing. So, I'm not saying anything new. I'm just echoing what the prophets have already stated. There is no longer any covenant of Moses. It's over. It's null and void. She's been divorced. She has no legal standing as the people of God, other than the promise that God's going to offer a new covenant. Waiting, waiting, waiting year after year, decade after decade, century after century, 
And finally, finally, the rumblings of the possible new covenant and its arrival. Yeshua the Messiah, the second and greater Moses, has at his last Passover Seder a covenant meal with wine and bread and lamb and, you know, a full Seder. And while they're drinking the third cup, which is the cup of redemption, calling to mind the covenant made with Moses when they became the people of God. And Jesus lifts that cup, and what does he say? He says, this is the cup of the new covenant. This is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. When he said, this is the blood of the covenant, in their hearing, what they're hearing is the covenant that Jeremiah prophesied was coming. They already understood that the old covenant was done away with. Their hearts are leaping because they're realizing what God had promised, this remarriage, gaining our standing once again, the redemption of God being offered in this Seder through the one who has claimed to be the Messiah. Could it be that this is the inauguration of the long-awaited new covenant? And it was crucified the next day he pours his blood out as an atonement for their sins so that everyone who believes could be forgiven the inauguration of the new covenant through his blood so fascinating i love this stuff so in hebrews chapter 8 let's look at this new covenant let's see what this new covenant is and what it isn't so in hebrews chapter 8 8 through 12 it says this for he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel. He's already prophesied that the old covenant is done away with. God has already told him, it's over. I've divorced you. You're done. No longer my wife. No longer my people. But he goes on to say, The days coming in which I will establish a new covenant with who? The Polish people. With who? The African people. With who? The Asian people. Nope, the same people. The same God makes a covenant with the same people. Israel. The Jew first and then the Gentiles. I'm going to establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers. Which one's that? The Mosaic Covenant. Are you trying to make a case that the Mosaic Covenant is still in force today? Because God's saying... It's been done away with a long time ago. And that the new one's not like the old one. This is where there's a disconnect. This covenant's new. It's not a renewal. It's actually brand new. It's different. It's in contradistinction with the old. I'm making a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. In Moses' day, when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Discontinuity. Old and new. Different covenants. Now, now, now let's look at the continuity that we find between these two. Because there's both discontinuity and continuity. Verse 10. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is a new covenant, not like the one that I made through Moses. You're either in the new covenant and exist as the Israel of God, or you're outside and alienated from God. This is the only covenant in existence. The new covenant, the one Jeremiah prophesied was coming, the one that Yeshua inaugurated and established. You're either in that covenant, existing as the Israel of God, as believing Jews and believing Gentiles, or you're on the outside, and you have no covenant standing, under condemnation, 
Your future's not bright, believe me. You're either in or out. Not only is only a remnant of Jewish believers saved, a remnant of Israel, as Zechariah says, maybe just a third of Israel ends up believing. But I believe it's the same with the nations. The bulk of the nations don't believe in Yeshua. The bulk of the Gentiles have rejected him. They're like Israel. No, it's only a remnant, I believe, among any ethnic group that responds to the grace of God that comes through Yeshua the Messiah. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. This is part of the new covenant. I'm going to write my laws on your hearts and in your minds. This word law that we have in our English translation is the Greek word nomos. It's the word that's used to translate the Hebrew word Torah. So if we were to rewrite that, God says, I'm going to put my Torah into your mind, and I'm going to write it on your heart. What does that mean? It means the Torah of the Old Covenant. Even though the Old Covenant was done away with, the Torah is brought forward and into the New Covenant. The Torah is not done away with. The Covenant was done away with. There's a new covenant, and the Torah now moves from the old into the new covenant. And God says, I write it on your hearts. I'm going to put it in your minds. And we know this is true, because actually, the writer of Hebrews is quoting Jeremiah. He's taking a quote directly out of the Hebrew. So if you go to the quote and look at Jeremiah, he actually uses the Hebrew word Torah. Make no mistake about it. The Torah is part of the New Testament, and it's written on your hearts. It's written on your hearts. I think this answers the question that we hear from so many Christian scholars that say that the Torah has been done away with. Kind of settles that question, doesn't it? It's done away with. God says, no, actually, I wrote it on your heart and in your mind. Yeah. It's not done away with. It's actually alive inside of you. It's a part of the new covenant. The words of many distinguished Messianic Jewish scholars say that the Torah is for the Jews only. And yet God says, wait, I've written it on your hearts and in your minds. Are you trying to tell me only Jews are saved? That the only people that God's going to save are Jews? Because what he promised Abraham was that not only would he save his descendants, specifically the Jewish people, but also the nations. Also the nations. You see, when you get born again, whether you're Jewish or Gentile, the Torah is written on your heart and it's in your mind. It settles that question once and for all. This Jewish baggage that wants to get rid of the Torah, the Jewish baggage that says it's not for the Gentiles, it's like, what? It's settled under the new covenant. It's so clear. The Torah is written on our hearts and in our minds. It's our inheritance. It's our heritage. Jesus says, you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And God says, I'm going to put the truth deep inside you. It's part of the grace that comes along with that new covenant. Now, in Hebrews chapter 8 and 11, it goes on to say, They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they all shall know me, from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Under that first covenant, God began to speak to Israel, and Israel got scared, and they said, No, 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 we don't want to dialogue with God. You know, Moses, you go, you, you enter into this relationship and you listen on our behalf and then you tell us and we'll, we'll, we'll kind of live vicariously through you. They were saying, we don't want this relationship with God. It's too scary to have a relationship with the living God. You do it on our behalf, Moses. That's the old covenant. Under the old covenant, you related to God through the priests. 
and the prophets. You didn't have a relationship with God. They did. You lived vicariously through them. God says under the new covenant, that ain't going to happen no more. Every one of you who come to me in faith through Jesus, you're going to know me. And I'm going to reveal myself to you. And you and I are going to have a relationship. You and I are going to live together, talk together, laugh, cry, fight. But we're going to have a solid relationship. That's the future of the new covenant. That's in part distinct from the old covenant. So, in the end, what we have is the Torah coming into the new covenant and then being put on the heart of every believer, whether they're Jewish or Gentile. And in Messiah, the Jew and the Gentile become one. And they live as the one people of God, the Israel of God, living out the Torah by faith and in love. So let's talk about the kingdom and the Torah. Let's get down to the nitty-gritty of the kingdom and the Torah. Seeing that every king has a law by which he governs his people, by what law does God govern those in his kingdom? Well, you know it by now. He governs by the Torah. The Torah is the revelation of righteousness. And this is the law of God. This is the law that he's always had. It's eternal. It's a revelation of him and righteousness. We call it the Torah. It includes worship days and worship ways that reveal and exalt Jesus as the Messiah. We have seven annual celebrations, appointed times, to celebrate who Yeshua is and what he's done and what he will accomplish. This is how we teach our children. This is how we carry it on to the next generation. This is something for every generation until the Lord returns. So we got to teach and teach our children well, right? So they'll carry on. Parents, our biggest task, you know what our biggest task is? To love our kids and lead them to the Lord and help them relate to the Lord so that they will carry on for themselves in this great redemption that we're experiencing. If our kids grow up and then they just kind of do their own thing, we have not done a very good job as parents. Our job as parents is to try to help them connect in a way that when they get old enough, they'll continue to walk in that way. How do we do that? Well, you got to make the covenant fun. You got to make the covenant exciting. Right? Man, I went to church as a Catholic, and I learned so much, and I'm so grateful, but man, it was not fun. You know, you stood still. You couldn't wiggle. You couldn't talk. It was like, you know, I mean, the grumpier you are, the more holy you were. Yeah, these poor kids would grow up, and the first thing they, they would do is get as far away from that as they could once they got old enough. Same thing within most Judaisms, if you notice. These kids are rock solid all the way up to their bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah, and then what? Adios. I don't want nothing to do with your religion, mom and dad. I'm done. I'm out of here, you know? Yeah, there's something wrong with that. I believe that God has given us his holy days as celebrations to eat and drink and dance and laugh and relate to one another, build relationships and have fun. These are kingdom parties that celebrate who Jesus is. His birth. Think of his birth. How exciting is that? Born of a virgin, right? The king of kings and lord of lords is born through a virgin birth, a supernatural virgin birth attended by the angels of heaven to be able to celebrate that at tabernacles when he came to tabernacle with us is amazing in every way. And when our kids get to participate in joyous celebrations, decorating sukkahs, little tabernacles, you know, learning the stories of Jesus via a nativity scene. It's amazing how that transforms them, right? All of these days that we have are there to celebrate who Messiah is. All those days point to him, his passion, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his outpoured spirit the inauguration of the new covenant, his coronation as king of kings and lord of lords. 
his return to judge the living and the dead, Rosh Hashanah. Party and party well. And let your kids have a blast as they learn about the glory of Jesus the Messiah. And they'll never leave him. They'll never leave him. And I'll tell you what, coming into Messianic Judaism and celebrating, I I just, it's almost too much. It's like, what? Another big festival, more food, more drink. My legs still hurt from the last dance party, you know? But it's true. It's almost like God says, man, my son is worth celebrating. So celebrate well. Be filled with joy. A joy unspeakable and full of glory. And share it with all those around you. So, the Torah functions on so many different levels in so many different ways. It says so much about so many things. Think about this. The Torah is the revelation about who we are as human beings. You know, when you think about this, who determines what is real? Who gets to say what is right and wrong, good and evil, and holy and unholy? Who gets to do that? The government? Is that who gets to do that? You know, our teachers in our schools and universities? Mom and dad? Who, what, what is your objective source of data for seeing what's real and understanding what's real? See, that's the Torah. In fact, one of the synonyms of Torah is what? Truth. Torah is truth, and truth is Torah. God is a God of truth, not just loving kindness. He's a God of truth. So he reveals to us through his Torah, because without it, we get all messed up. He reveals to us through his Torah who we are as human beings. He tells us what it, what it means to be male and female. You understand that? He tells us what it means to be male and female. See, we've abandoned the Torah, and now what do we do? We got 65 different genders. It is so confusing. Do away with Torah, and marriage gets upside down. The family gets deconstructed. Everything falls apart. Everything is redefined and upside down. And then come the curses. God has so much to say about wealth creation and prosperity, education, private property, health and happiness, dietary issues, mental health issues. Look at how many people are depressed and confused and anxious. The the pills that are most prescribed in America are pills for anxiety and mood disorders. You know, God tells us how to govern our minds, to focus on the things that are good and pure and holy, right? To learn to rejoice, to learn to look at things positively rather than negative. And you know what it does? It governs your mind. Your mind determines your brain chemistry, your brain chemistry, your hormones, and then how you feel. Happiness is a choice. It's a choice. Character formation. God has a lot to say about integrity, humility, honesty, truthfulness, grace and mercy, advocacy, you know, championing the cause of the downtrodden, generosity, so much there, so much there. No wonder the Torah is the basis of not only the old, but the new covenant. Those are just some of the highlights of the Torah. Now let's take a closer look at how it relates to the kingdom. Luke 16, 16. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom has been preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. Now, when you read that on the surface, doesn't that sound like the Torah is being removed? The law, the Torah, the Torah and the prophets, the Tanakh, they were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. Sounds almost like the Torah is being displaced or removed as the kingdom is ushered in. But the next verse, verse 17, is certainly interesting. Jesus says, right on the heels of that, but, however, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. Now, why would he say that? I mean, it sounds like what he's saying is, 
Not only is the Torah not being done away with, not even the decorative strokes on the letters, which, by the way, are meaningless. Those decorative strokes, like calligrapha, are just to beautify the Hebrew script. They have no meaning. And Jesus is saying not even the decorative stroke is going to be interrupted or disrupted with the entrance of my kingdom on earth. He says that because some people are going to assume that with the arrival of the kingdom, the Torah is being done away with. In fact, in Matthew 7, or 5, 17 through 20, he actually clarifies this. He says, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And the words abolish and fulfill have to do with interpreting and applying the Torah. So the rabbis would split up a group of students, give them a passage, say, what does Moses mean and how do we apply it? Both groups would work on it. After a while, the rabbi would say, okay, what'd you come up with? So the point person for, let's say, group A would say, well, this is what Moses meant, and this is how we would apply it today. And if they misinterpreted Moses, the rabbi would shout, what? Wrong! You've abolished the Torah. Sit down. Group B, what do you say? The reason he would say you've abolished the Torah is because if you misinterpret the Torah, then it can't be applied. And if it can't be applied, in effect, you've done away with it. The word abolish and fulfill were terms that the rabbis used in relationship with interpreting and applying the Torah. Group B would stand up and say, well, this is what Moses meant, and this is how you apply it. And if they hit the mark, if it was a good interpretation, the rabbi would say, yes, bravo. You have fulfilled the Torah. Fulfilled it in the sense that they correctly interpreted it so that it could be correctly applied so that the blessings would come to the people. Abolish and fulfill. Jesus says, do not think that I've come to abolish the prophets or the the law or the prophets. He's a young rabbi. He's teaching Torah. That's what rabbis do. He's this young, radical rabbi from Galilee with a great big following teaching Torah, teaching, this is what Moses said, this is what it means, this is how we apply it. And these other teachers of the day are spreading a nasty rumor that Jesus is misinterpreting the Torah in what he's teaching and thereby abolishing it. And Jesus is saying, oh, no, 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 no. I've not come to misinterpret Moses, but to correctly interpret Moses and thereby establish him in the lives of believers. Verse 18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke, the same word that we found in Luke, stroke, the decorative stroke. He says, not only am I not doing away with any of the laws, I won't even do away with one sentence, not even one word, not even the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet, not even the decorative stroke that's meaningless. None of that will be injured in any way by my interpretation. In fact, it's going to come into its fullness. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. In the kingdom. The Torah is part of the kingdom. It's how the king rules and governs his people. Via the Torah, the Torah is one with the king. The Torah permeates his kingdom. It's a way of life for those who are subjects of the kingdom. The Torah is one with the kingdom. So, in summary, the kingdom and the Torah, they're not competing with each other. They're in harmony. The kingdom does not eliminate the Torah. In fact, the Torah fulfills and brings meaning to the kingdom. How we interpret it will either result in it being abolished or established. And the art of interpretation is no easy task. The renowned scholar, Old Testament scholar, Walter C. Kaiser states, quote, How should the Christian church in the midst of a modern world understand and appropriate the significance of the Old Testament? It is no exaggeration to claim that this question outranks 
every other problem in biblical interpretation. It is the problem in Christian theology. The manner in which this is solved affects every other area of theology in one way or another. Therefore, we can pose no other fundamental question in all of theology. The answer to this problem, interpreting the Torah, the answer to this problem will leave its mark in every realm where we formulate and act out our theology. The Torah is central to the king and to his people. It's our way of life. We should understand it and apply it well if we want to live in the power, authority, and glory of the kingdom. Another eminent Christian Old Testament scholar, the late Amel G. Kraling, stated this, The Old Testament problem is not just one of many. It is the master problem of theology. So, careful how you handle it. It's a sacred text. It's our way of life. Miss it, and we release the curses. Interpret it correctly and apply it, and we release the blessings. It's not a salvific issue. Salvation is by grace through faith and faith alone, not of works. It's not a salvation issue. It's do you want to experience this salvation in this life? You do so by walking within the framework of God's revealed righteousness. So Jesus said, I'll just conclude with this, Jesus said that based on who he is, he will build his ecclesia. He will build his church, the church of the Lord that started in the wilderness under Moses that he receives from the Father along with the kingdom. He's going to build up this ecclesia. He is also going to take the power, authority, and glory of the kingdom of God and give it to the church. All of us become participants in the rule and reign of Messiah on earth as it is in heaven. This is our glory. This is our mission. This is our mandate. We, his ecclesia, we love him and thus we keep the Torah as a heritage and as an inheritance. In addition to that, Jesus gives us the mandate that was given to him. We receive the kingdom. We receive the mission. And we carry on through the Spirit of God. Matthew 28, 16 through 20. But the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshiped him. But some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven above and earth below. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Our primary task in terms of the mission of the kingdom of God is to go and gather people to the kingdom, to go and make disciples to bring people into a faith relationship with Jesus, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. It's that entrance into the kingdom of God that advances the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. We are the ones God's relying on. The song, send us, right? It's us. We are the ones with the mission and the mandate to go and share this with those around us. Look for opportunities among your family, your friends, where you work, where you go to school. Always look for those divine appointments. We miss them most of the time because we're not paying attention, but they're all around us. And God's saying, go, make disciples of the nations. Advance my kingdom. Verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Teaching them to observe what I've commanded you. What is that? The Torah. Teach them about this new way of life. Help them not only enter into the kingdom, but teach them how to live according to my kingdom ways, my kingdom values, my
my righteousness. It's revealed. It's right there. And lo, I'm with you even to the end of the age. The local church is where the kingdom is collectively manifested and represented. You cannot separate the kingdom and the church. You cannot find the kingdom outside of the church. This is why I'm a big advocate of joining a church. Join a church, get plugged in. The purpose of the church is corporate worship, not individual worship, corporate. God's after a, a, a people, a family. Corporate worship, corporate fellowship, corporate edification. We need to be built up. People need to be built up all around you. The world's hard. I mean, there's, there's really difficult things that we face in our lives, and sometimes we get so beat down, we don't even want to go on, you know? People take their lives. They get so desperate. You know, one word of edification can be the very thing that keeps a person from taking their life. We undervalue what a word from the Lord of encouragement can do in the life of a person who is on the verge of hopelessness. Corporate discipleship, corporate evangelism. This is what local churches do. No one else has the kingdom and the glory. Not Washington, D.C., not the state governments, not the White House, not the military, not the CDC, not Ivy League universities like Harvard, Princeton, and Yale, not the billionaires like Soros and Bill Gates, not the neo-Marxist organizations with their radical lawlessness as represented in defund the police, deconstruct gender, marriage, and the family, as they incite a new global racism that is illogical, irrational, and bizarre in every way. No, none of these groups, none of these people have the authority and the power and the glory of the kingdom of God. It's given to the church. We have it. We extend it. It's this kingdom that's an everlasting kingdom. It will never end. All these other groups, people, organizations are going to just fall away as we continue to rise. So invest yourselves in a local church. Get plugged in. Let's advance the kingdom. It's who we are. And let's celebrate the Torah. It's a way of life for the king and his people. Shabbat Shalom.